Well, let me go ahead and get started in a word of prayer and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, we do come before you. And Father, as we behold your servant, Jesus Christ, our King, Father, we want to behold him, we want to see him, we want to become like him for your glory. Lord, show us yourself in the word. Lord, may we hear everything with a heart to obey. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that you would be glorified by everything you hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want to do as we get ready to start chapter 42 is, is constantly go back and put everything in context. So if we remember, when we think about Jesus and what the Bible says about him, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about the seed of Eve, who will one day bruise the head of the serpent. Then we go forward and we see Abraham, and we see Christ revealed, we see the angel of the Lord, we see Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, which promises now a seed not just of Eve, but a seed of Abraham. And that seed is the very person we're going to talk about today in chapter 42. Then we're going to go forward and we see Moses. And Moses is confronted by God in the burning bush, and we know that that is a Christology. Who is that in the burning bush? It's Christ. So we go forward now, and we're, we're to the point where Israel has been taken captive, and Isaiah is now talking to Judah about their future captivity that is going to occur about a hundred years later. And we've worked our way through that. We've worked our way through the history of that. And now we're in the latter part of the book where for the first time, God is going to start giving us some very clear revelation about his son and his plan of redemption for all of mankind. He has a plan of redemption for Judah. He will not abandon his promises. He made unconditional promises to Abraham. He made unconditional promise in the Palestinian covenant. And he made unconditional problems to uh, Abraham. And he's going to fulfill all those promises. He's going to be faithful to his word. And what we're going to see this morning is the first of four servant songs. We're going to see God's further revelation of his redemptive plan and the means by which that will be accomplished. And that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let me read you a quote. It says, therefore, this is speaking of chapter 42. Therefore, the hope of the world lies in the servant of the Lord, the delight of the Lord, the quiet healer, the man for others who wields the only true power that exists, the power to reorder human civilization, not by bullying, but by suffering, not by imposing demands on us, but by absorbing our sins and miseries into himself. And the furthest coastlands will not dread his approach. They will eagerly wait for his law. This is Jesus. So we're going to read about Jesus this morning. Our entire chapter is about Jesus. So this is, as I mentioned, the first of four what are known as servant songs. These are four passages that will deal in greater and greater detail with the Messiah. We'll notice in chapter 4 as we begin to read it that it's going to talk about a servant, but this servant is, like, is not like other servants that we have read about. In Isaiah 20, verse 3, God says this, And Yahweh said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years. So he refers to Isaiah as a servant. We see in Isaiah 41, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. 
So we see Israel and Jacob called his servant. And in chapter 45, we're going to see this. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed. In other words, his servant. All of these people are called servant. But what we're going to see in this chapter is this servant is different. This servant is not like any other servant. This servant is the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. Everything is concentrated in him. The one, the gracious purposes of God toward the whole human race are manifested even in the election of Israel and they are brought by him to their fullest completion. That's the servant we're talking about. God is now going to present Messiah through Isaiah. He is going to be very clear. And by the way, where do we first get this idea of an anointed prophet? Where does that go back to? Well, that goes back to Moses and Deuteronomy, where Moses promises, look, you're going to have a prophet like me who's going to come after me. Right? And Israel has been looking for that prophet up to today. Now, if you're a Messianic Jew, you understand that prophet is Jesus himself. He is the Messiah. That is the one they've been looking for. And in this and the following chapters, God is going to make his clearest presentation of his Messiah as Savior of Israel and the world. This servant is their Savior, and this servant is your Savior. God's servant is going to restore God's intent for all of mankind. We're going to see that in this chapter. It is through the servant, Jesus himself, that God will restore creation and establish the perfect rule over his people. All God's people will eventually worship and honor this servant, all of them. In Isaiah 53, verse 11, by the way, Isaiah 53 is another servant song. And it says this in verse 11, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. Who does that sound like? That is Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice God says, look, I am going to give you a portion with the many. In other words, he's saying you're going to rule. But we get an even further and more detailed view of this in the New Testament in Philippians 2. This is a passage you all know, but let me read it and remind you of your Savior. In verse 9, Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, this is all about the glory of the Father through the Son. We read that in Genesis, we read that in Exodus, we read that in Deuteronomy, we read that throughout the Old Testament, we read it in Judges, right? We read it in Joshua, we read it through the kings as they're explained in Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. Now we're reading it in Isaiah, we see it in the Psalms, we see it in the rest of them, we're going to see it in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we've been quoting all those passages, Zephaniah. We see it in the minor prophets and now we're going to see it in the New Testament and one day we will all witness it personally. And I want you to notice Philippians tells us that every knee 
will bow. Now, what do you think that means? What would be a good way to translate that? Every knee shall bow. See, here's one of the things you need to understand. Every human being, past, present, and future, is going to either bow the knee in obedience to their Lord and Savior, or they're going to bow the knee to their judge. Pick one. Okay, pick one. In Romans 16, it says this, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. When it says under your feet, who's the your there? Yeah, Jesus. Revelation 19, if you're still not convinced, let me read you Revelation 19, verse 15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty, and he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Who's that? It's Christ. It's the servant. I hope you by now have figured out that when we talk about Christ and the future and God's redemptive plan and the end times, that we're not just picking one or two verses. We see this everywhere in Scripture, right? And, and if nothing else, that ought to make you really confident about the reliability of your Bible. We have a book written over thousands of years, and it, all the story is consistent from the very beginning of the book to the very end. I want you to point, I want to point out that God's servant serves, uh, perfectly serves Yahweh. Let me read you a quote from Matthew Henry. God owns him as one employed for him. He is my servant. Though he was a son, yet as a mediator, he took upon him the form of a servant, learned obedience to the will of God, and practiced it and laid out himself to advance the interests of God's kingdom, and so he was God's servant. John 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This servant, Jesus, the Messiah, will perfectly serve the Father. He will perfectly serve Yahweh. In John 5, Jesus says this, I can do nothing from myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgments are righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, is Jesus any less God than the Father? No. Ontologically, in his nature, he and the Father and the Spirit are equal. They're equally God. They're equally powerful. They are all God. Yet, in his role as the Son, the eternal Sonship of Christ, and we're going to see this a little bit later, he submits to the will of the Father. He is no less than the Father, but in his role as the Son, he submits to the Father's will. So let's start taking this chapter apart. And I have to tell you, like the next five to ten chapters, well, actually the next twenty-some chapters, are just incredible. You guys ought to really enjoy this. Because you're going to see your Savior in a way you have not seen him before. You're going to see, we're going to talk Jesus for the rest of this book. So in verse 42, let me read verses 1 through 4. Behold, my, by the way, I want you to pay attention in your Bibles to the capitalization. Right? Pay attention to the capitalization. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice and truth. He will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Now there is more, frankly, we could really spend several weeks on these four verses. But in the interest of finishing the book before the next five years, we're going to go a little bit faster. But I want you to notice it starts off saying, Behold! Remember, every time you see that word, that is a God saying, Hey, shut up and listen! Right? Pay attention! I got something I want to say here. God's saying that. God's saying, Behold! Pay attention! This art saying it. My servant who uphold my chosen one. He is God's chosen servant. This servant is the chosen one whom God upholds and in whom God takes delight. This servant is no ordinary human being. Peter tells us that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And he has come to accomplish God's redemptive plan for Judah and for you. This servant is the one who will come in full power of God and will pour out a spirit on the servant in full measure. He will pour out his spirit one day on Judah. And we know that he has already poured out his spirit on the church. Right? We see that in Acts. Jesus said that when I go, the Helper's going to come, right? And we see in Acts, in the beginning of the book of Acts, at Pentecost, what happens? God gives the Spirit to His church. So that every single one of you in this room who is a believer is fully indwelt by who? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the servant. Every one of you. If you're not filled with the Spirit, then you need to repent and believe because you're not a believer. Right? You're not a believer. Notice he starts off, he calls them God's beloved. When you hear that, I imagine several things immediately popped into your mind. One of them was Matthew 3, where Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, and we hear this. God speaks, and he says, and behold, what does that word mean? Pay attention. There was a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I once had somebody say he hadn't done anything yet. How can God be pleased? My answer to that is, whoa, pay attention. We know from John 17, see, this is, this is one where we need to meditate on the, on the incomprehensible nature of Jesus Christ. Because before the foundation of the world, he was with the Father in full glory, right? He and the Father in full glory living in as part of the Trinity before creation. And see, we can't understand that, right? We, we are like ants trying to behold right, a computer when we think about this. We're just, we're just not going to get it. Kind of like my mother-in-law trying to figure out all the buttons on the phone, only more, right? Don't tell her I said that when she comes back. <laughs> But the point is simply this. Jesus left the incomparable glory of heaven where all the angels bowed down before him as God to become a baby, a man, and have his diaper changed by a sinful woman. See, we, we will never fully comprehend that. The sacrifice of just leaving heaven to come and be a man. 
is, is a greater sacrifice than, than we can understand. So when we get to the point of the baptism, he's done a lot, and God says, I am well pleased. First Peter says this in chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he appeared in these last times for your sake. He was foreknown, he was loved by God before the foundation of the world. By, by the way, one of the things you'll see in John 17 that Jesus longs for most, let me just read it to you. It's not in your notes. You get this extra, okay? No extra fee for this one. I'm just throwing this in absolutely free. Now let me find it. Um, I'm going to read at the beginning of John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hours come. He's literally hours away from the cross when he says this. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life, by the way, what is eternal life? Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Listen to this. I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you have given me. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is saying, Lord, I want the glory that I had with you before there was anything I want that back. Now, you may think that's pretty selfish, but that's God demanding the, the praise and the glory that was his before eternity, which he gave up for you. He gave up for me. The next thing I want you to note is that he will operate in the power of the Spirit. He says, I will, notice it says, I will put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 61, 61 verse 1, it says, The spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captive and freedom to prisoners. By the way, Jesus quotes that in Luke 4 verse 16. Jesus, the man, now here's, okay, let's talk about some things that are incomprehensible. Jesus is fully God. Will anybody argue that? We'll all agree to that, right? Nod your heads, yes. If not, we need to talk afterwards. But we'll also agree he was fully man, right? And you ask, how, how is that possible? I don't know. He's God, I'm not right? I just know it's true. I just know it's true. He's fully God, fully man. But now I want to bend your mind a little bit. Jesus the man is an example of how a man empowered by the Holy Spirit lives a perfect life. Because don't just go, oh, Jesus the man did everything he did because he was God. Not true. He suffered as a man. He got hungry. He got thirsty. Right? Notice in Acts 10, it says this in verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. See, here's the issue. Let me read you a quote from a really good book uh, by Bruce Ware. He says, he's talking about Christ the man living a perfect life. And here's why that's important to you. You're not saved without this. You are destined for hell without this. Because Jesus Christ had to be God because on the cross, he bore infinite, infinite wrath. No man can bear infinite wrath. If you fail to believe in Christ, how long will you be in hell? Forever. 
trying to pay an infinite cost. Only God could bear the infinite wrath of God on the cross. Jesus had to be God. But that's not enough. Christ the man had to live a perfectly righteous life as a spirit-empowered man so that that righteousness could be imputed to you. You understand, getting the righteousness of God imputed to you can't happen. He is God. Jesus had to be a man so that his righteousness could be imparted to you because he lived a perfectly righteous life. Bruce Ware puts it this way. The only way to make sense then of the fact that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit is to understand that he lived his life fundamentally as a man and as such relied on the Spirit to provide the power, grace, knowledge, wisdom, direction, and enablement he needed moment by moment and day by day to fulfill the mission of the Father sent him to accomplish. Christ the man was the perfect spirit-controlled man. And by the way, and, and we know from 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17, 18, 17, that um, in the great exchange, right, he not only bore our sin on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, let me check that. Which one? Who's, who's saying yep? 5, 21, thank you. That was a test. Nicely done. But notice in that verse, yeah, so sometimes I worry you guys may think I'm, I'm really smart, so I have to occasionally show you, yeah, I'm not so smart. Um, but in that verse, it says, He made him who knew no sin to what? Be sin on our behalf. That's the eternal God. Only an eternal God could bear infinite wrath on your behalf. Because if, if, if you're going to do it, it's going to take you all eternity. You'll be there a hundred million millennia, and you're still not anywhere close to being done. There's no hope you will ever escape hell, ever. But the infinite God bore infinite wrath. But notice the verse doesn't end there, right? He made him no sin to be sin on your behalf that you might become what? The righteousness of God in him. See, having your sins forgiven will not get you into heaven by itself. Scripture says repeatedly, only the who enter the kingdom? The righteous. Only the righteous. Being sinless just gets you back to point zero. But when Christ imputes Christ the man's righteous, perfect life to your account, you now stand before God not only forgiven, but we stand before God perfectly righteous. And by the way, he also serves as, as, as an example of how a spirit-powered man can live. How many sins did Christ the man commit? None. None. Zero. How did he do that? He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the next question. Did he have a different spirit than you? Nope. Okay. Let's continue. The mission of the spirit, the servant, I'm sorry, the mission of the servant. Notice it says that he will bring justice to a fallen world. The word justice is used three times. But I want you to know here that the word justice has a different connotation to it. In Exodus 26, verse 30, it talks about more than just being legally correct. It talks about the plan for the tabernacle, the blueprint that God has revealed in heaven. In other words, that word can mean legal justice, but it can also mean the fulfilling of God's plan for all mankind. Jesus will reorder human civilization in a beautiful way. God's kingdom will come and his will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And that's what we were made for. Justice includes within its scope 
the longing for a better life and a better world, a just world, a human society that lives without corruption exactly as God has always intended it to do from creation. That's what he's talking about here. The Messiah isn't just going to sit there in some courtroom and go, yes, no, jail. He is going to reorder creation so that everything will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perfectly. That's the mission of the servant. John 5.17, he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And remember what we read in Isaiah 9? Christmas is coming. It's October 1st. Did you guys notice that? I don't know about you guys. I'm like, wait a minute. Where did September go? Anyway, for you starting to think about Christmas, Isaiah 9.7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 9, who are we talking about? Who does Isaiah 9 verse 7 refer to? Messiah, the servant. He's not called the servant back then. But that's who we're talking about. But I want you to notice this other amazing truth that we see in the first four verses. And that's the heart of the servant. One commentator said this, Human rulers often exercise their rule with brute power. God's servant, however, will exercise his rule with tender grace. Tender grace for those who are humble, who humble themselves to fear the Lord, and receive his forgiveness. If you remember, when Jesus stood before Pilate and they accused him, what was his answer? How did he argue against them? What threats did he make against Pilate? Nothing. He didn't say anything. By the way, our passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 12. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of the fact that they wanted to make him king, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known, in order that was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be full, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my spirit, my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he, will, he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, he will not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. See, this verse is quoted with reference to the life of Christ. In case we had any questions... You're going, where did Art get this servant thing as Jesus? Well, do you have any questions now? Right? That's what Jesus himself says when it's quoted in Matthew 12. But Jesus says this about himself. By the way, who created the world? Jesus did. Who's going to one day rule the entire world with might and with an iron fist? Jesus will. But here's that Jesus. Matthew 11, let me pick it up in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's Jesus saying? You can try and keep the law. Good luck. All the sacrifices, all the things, everything in the law perfectly without making a sin. You can try, right? And that's quite the burden. He says, or you can lean on me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Do you understand that when you go to your Savior, when you pray to Christ, 
He is gentle and humble, and He cares for you, and He hears you. He's not some despotic ruler. He's a gentle shepherd, and you are a sheep. Another commentator said this, Isaiah tells us that the servant's mission is not to crush broken sinners, but to gently restore them. Later in the third servant song, we'll see a similar idea. The Lord has given me the tongue of the disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. You know, when your soul is weary, when you're in anxiety, when you're in trials, when things look like they can't get worse, we can turn to our gentle Savior who loves us. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. That is the servant of Yahweh. But let's look on. Let's look at God's call of the servant. Pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 42. Thus says the Lord, thus says God Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you. And I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nation, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit dark, the darkness from the prison. Verse 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I will cause you to hear them. I will cause you to hear them. This is a breathtaking passage. I hope you caught some of that. It starts off where, where God makes it really clear who's talking here. Behold, I am Yahweh. Thus says the God Yahweh. God's going to talk about his servant who he called and in doing it, God is going to establish who he is and who the servant is. First of all, notice God has called the servant. God identifies himself as the creator in verse 5. He is the incorruptible right that is he is the incorruptible one who has exclusive right to the cosmos and who maintains an exclusive care for it and its inhabitants. God does that. He makes it very clear he does that. Notice, he says he gives breath to the people and the spirit to those who walk on it. Who does that? Yahweh. You know, one thing that I have come to realize, I guess it's part of getting old. My two grandkids back there are going, Grandpa's nuts. But I realize that every breath I take is a gift from Yahweh. Every breath. Do you understand that? God has ordained before the foundation of the world the number of breaths you will take. He literally has counted the number of breaths you will take, and there will be a point where you will, Yahweh will stop that, and you will take no more breaths. But you should... Pray every day and thank Yahweh for every breath you take, for it is a gift that he himself gives. And notice he has called him in righteousness. God will lead him according to the covenant he has made before the foundation of the world. You need to understand what he's talking about. He says, I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Who is he going to give to the people as a covenant? The servant. And who is that? Jesus. It is Jesus. What's this? He's talking about a covenant that was made before the foundation of the world. What's that all about? What is this covenant before the foundation of the world? 
Well, can I give you some hints? All right. Jim says yes, so I, I get to. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect. Who's God's elect? The church, it's believers. And the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now listen to verse 2. In the hope of eternal life. Is that now what we have? Believers, the elect, have a hope of eternal life. Unbelievers, non-elect, do not. But listen to the rest of it. Which God who cannot lie promised from all eternity? Huh, what's that mean? Well, the phrase from all eternity means before the foundation of the world. It means before there was creation. Before there was stars. Right? They didn't exist forever. God created them at one point, about 6,000 years ago. Before that, there was no creation. God created it all ex nihilo, out of nothing, right? And he's saying before that, the God who, by the way, cannot lie, made a promise about giving eternal life to the elect before the foundation of the world. So here's the question. To whom did the Father promise this? He didn't promise it to us because we don't exist yet. He promised it to the Son. This is intra-Trinitarian stuff here. This is a covenant that God made before the foundation of the world with the Son and with the Spirit. God said, look, I'm going to create creation and I'm going to make a people, and they're going to be the bride of you, my son, but you will have to die on the cross to redeem them, and we will give them eternal life, and the Spirit will regenerate them, and they will come, and for eternity they will live in our very presence, these elect people. And that promise to the Son was made before the foundation of the world. In John 5, verse 19, Jesus says this, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. Notice what it said here in our text. It says that Yahweh will lead him by the hand, right? I will take hold of you, you being the servant, by the hand and guard you. I will give you a, as a covenant to the people, as light to the nations. And Jesus, when he's on earth, says, look, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm doing what the Father says, because that was all part of the covenant we made before the foundation of the world. Now that ought to be somewhat of an encouragement to you. Do you understand that before there was creation, before there was a universe and stars, before any of that existed, God looked and said, I am going to call to be with me in eternity, Art Wachdorf, and the son, you're going to die for him, and my name was, as it tells us in Revelation, Written in the book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, if you think you can earn your salvation, think about that for a little bit. Your name was written in the book of life when? So what did you do to earn it before the foundation of the world? Yeah, you didn't even exist. Creation didn't even exist. Nice try. And he will be a covenant to his people. Don't miss that phrase. This is one of those wonderful, amazing passages. He will be a covenant to his people. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Right? God made the Mosaic covenant with Israel. How did that work out for Israel? 
God said, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you do this, I'll curse you. What did they do? They did that. What happened? God cursed them. But he made a promise to Abraham that was unconditional. He made a promise to David that was unconditional. And then in Jeremiah, he says this. And I want you to to look at our part of this. I want you to look at Israel's part, what Israel has to do. Behold, turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, No, Yahweh, well, why won't they do that? For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. That is the new covenant. Who is the new covenant to? Who's he making it with? He says right here, with with Israel and with the house of Judah. He says, I'm going to make you a different covenant. By the way, we looked at that. How many times did we see Judah doing anything? Zip. Notice he says, I will put the law on them. I will write it. I will be their God. They won't have to teach each other because they will know me, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity. The new covenant is an unconditional covenant. By the way, nobody is saved apart from this covenant. Nobody. And it's promised to Judah and Israel. Uh Uh-oh, what about us? Does God do the new covenant to us? When does he do that? At At the Last Supper, Jesus, as he gave the cup, he said, this is the cup of my blood. I'm going to bear your sins on the cross. That's what this cup represents. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Church, the new covenant was a promise given to Israel and Judah, but now, church, I'm applying it to you through the blood, my blood on the cross. So is the new covenant applied to us? Yes. So how is Jesus a new covenant to his people? Well, turn to Hebrews 9, verse 15. This is an amazing passage. For this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. What covenant is the new covenant? Jeremiah 31, 31. You can see the same thing in Ezekiel 36. So that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while one who made it lives. So there's a mediator of this new covenant. Who's the mediator of the new covenant who gave his life so that the new covenant can be a reality? Who's that? It's the servant. It's Jesus. It's Christ. So when God says, look, I'm going to give him as a covenant, what he's saying is, look, Jesus is going to mediate a new covenant. This new covenant is going to apply to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, I was listening to a a thing this week, and they were talking about how Old Testament people get saved. Can Old Testament people get saved? Yep. 
like Abraham, right? How do they get saved? By faith. Faith in what? The servant. Faith in Jesus. Now, did Abraham understand all of the details? He understood the promise of the coming Messiah because God gave it to him. He didn't understand all the details because they didn't have MacArthur Study Bibles or LSBs back then. So get your LSB. Now they did. Yeah, well, some of them did. But here's the point. Right? Abraham looked forward to the promise. We look back to the cross, they look forward. But they put their faith in God's promises, and that's how they were saved, right? It says right in Romans. How was Abraham saved? He goes back and he quotes Genesis. He was saved by faith. And he's a model for everybody else, because how are we all saved? By faith. And the new covenant, and who's the mediator of the new covenant? Christ. He was given as a covenant to Judah and to Israel. What it says right here in our text, we can't miss it. But Jesus tells us in the upper room that he's going to give the new covenant to us, to the church. So we experience the new covenant before the Jews, before all Israel will. Now, are there Jews who experience the new covenant? Sure, there's a remnant. I know seven. They're called Messianic Jews. They're Jews who believe that Jesus is their Messiah. There's lots of them, by the way. They are the remnant. But one day, all Israel will be saved. So let's move on. I want you to notice in verses 8 or 9, and 9, that the servant will glorify God. That's why he exists. In his role as the Son, he exists to glorify the Father. Now again, go back to John 17. We read that earlier. Does Jesus have equal glory with the Father? Yes, he does. Because, by the way, guess what the Father is going to do for the Son? He's going to give him all glory. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, although who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's what we talked about earlier. Leaving the glory of heaven to become a baby who had to have his diaper changed by a sinful woman. By taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, he found an appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's going to happen? Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed a name on him which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. We already read that part of it. He made that sacrifice so that God would be glorified and God, in turn, is going to glorify him. Jesus says this in John 12, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. In John 17, Jesus says this. He's ours from the cross. Listen to what he says. He's praying now to the Father. We're getting a view into an intra-Trinitarian prayer. It is, it is the longest prayer of Jesus to the Father recorded in Scripture. We have lots of prayers, but they're usually really short. This one, we're seeing the heart of the Savior, the servant. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. How did he glorify God? By he is going to die on the cross and bear the sins of those who are written in the book of life as part of the eternal promise, which was part of a covenant before the foundation of the world. And in that, God is glorified. Well, you hear that, and you only have one response, right? And that is praise, right? How, how, how can you do anything else? 
Well, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see what, the, what I've titled the Servant's Song. By the way, that wasn't very original. Look at the first word in verse 10. The idea of a new song refers to fresh praise for a new work of salvation. Isaiah says that a new song will be sung. For God is the one who has established justice and delivered from oppression. Something new is going to happen with the servant. The servant is going to come and rule on earth. He's going to establish heaven on earth perfectly. He's going to rule with perfect justice. So let's read verses 10 through 17. So therefore, verse 10, sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing his praises from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea as well as its fullness, you coastlands and those who inhabit them, let the wilderness and all the cities lift up their voices, the villages where Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare His praise in the coastlands. Yahweh will go forth like a warrior. He will awaken His zeal like a man of war. He will make a loud shout indeed. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now like a woman and later I will groan. I will both grasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and dry up all the vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the pools of waters. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are things I will do. I will not forsake them. They will be turned back and will be utterly put to shame who trust in graven images, who say to molten images, you are gods. This is the song of believers. He's going to come and he's going to give the servant as a covenant to his people. To Judah and Israel and to the church. To you. And, and you only have one option. You need to sing to Yahweh a new song. I want you to note it's a global song, right? He says everybody will do it. The people in the mountains, the coastlands, all over. He goes and he uses very descriptive voice. Those who are in the sea, those who are on the earth, the coastlands, the villages, the cities. Everywhere God's people will sing forth his praises. He commands it and it will happen. But let's look at the content of the song. Maybe I'll ask Tom later to to sing the song. I don't know the words to it yet. But I want you to notice in verses 12 and 13 the content of the song. God needs to be praised because of his great deeds and the fact that he has defeated all his enemies. This will happen when Christ returns and the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will rouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utterly shout, yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. That day is coming. And I'll tell you, I just look around. I think it's coming way soon. Right? See those grandchildren back there in mind? They may see it. I mean, not literally. They may see it. You may see it. Right? You may see it. In Isaiah 59, verse 16, it says this, Then I saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And he put righteousness, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle according to what they deserve, so he will pay in full. Wrath to his adversaries, 
what is deserved to his enemies to the coastlands, he will pay what they deserve. Who's the he here? Jesus. And I want you to note, the reason I read Isaiah 59 is God looks around for somebody who's going to deliver Judah, who's going to reign justice on the earth. And who does he find? Nobody. Right? Putting your trust in men to bring true righteousness to fix this world is a foolish thing to do. God says he looks around and there's nobody. So who's going to do it? The servant. He's going to put on the garment of vengeance. He's going to do all this. Psalm 2, we read the first part of that before, but let me pick it up in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are a son today. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Who is the one who says, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Who, who's that? The servant. That's Jesus. See, we're seeing this all over. Right? Again, we're, we're not, I'm not picking one verse here. This is all over Scripture. You can't deny it. And in the interest of time, well, I can't help it. Revelation 15, verse 1. I just want you to see this. This is your Savior. This is the one we're going to go worship in about 45 minutes. Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, and great and marvelous seven angels who have seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who have overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the glass of the sea of glass, having harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true uh, are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all the nations will come before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Wow. By the way, who's, who's going to be singing that song? The song of Moses, it's called. Who's going to be doing that? Specifically, who's going to be doing that? You are. If you're a believer, you're in that verse. Along with those who are martyred in the tribulation. And we will be singing a new song to Yahweh. And do the see it says right here and to the lamb, who's the lamb? Jesus. And in verses fourteen through seventeen, we see an unusual passage. It says, "Now like a woman, I labor and I groan. I will grasp and pant." Verse fourteen shows us a picture of Christ's return. Here's something you need to understand. God will have allowed his wrath to build year after year. In the New Testament, Paul says that we are abiding in wrath. God's wrath is building. You look around at what's happening in the world and go, oh, why is God ignoring this? He's not. He describes his wrath here, that he's holding it back, he's holding it back, he wants all the elect to come, and when the, all the elect have come, then he's no longer going to hold his wrath back. He is going to relieve it. Zechariah says it this way. Zechariah says, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations, which have taken you as spoil, for he touches you, uh, touches the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye is Judah. And he's going to go down, and he's going to torch them, he's going to destroy them. God is going to send the servant, and he's going to destroy all those 
who shake their fists in the hands of Yahweh. And look around, guys. The number of people who bow their knee in obedience and submission to Yahweh, to Jesus, as we read in Philippians, is getting smaller and smaller. More people are shaking their fists, demanding to do whatever they want, cursing Yahweh. And you think, oh, God's wrath, where is he? Well, he's coming. And we are told right here in this passage that, yeah, his wrath is building, and one day he's going to let it go. Right? And out of love, he's waiting for, he's giving everybody an opportunity. Repent. Repent. The time is coming. Repent. And then there will be a time when he shuts the door. And he talks about spiritual blindness in verses 16 and 17. God's eschatological work will include the work of dealing with spiritual blindness. Verse 16 conveys the idea that he will restore their eyes and he will save them. But to those who cling to their idols, see it there, those who cling to their idols, he has chosen wrath, right? That's an abomination. Isaiah 29, verse 18, on that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of darkness and thick darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. See, there is come today where, where some of the blind are going to have their eyes open and their ears opened, and who's going to do that? Specifically, who does that? God does that through the Holy Spirit. In John 9, verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that they that those who may not those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to open the eyes of the ones God has called, and the other ones I'm going to blind. All right? So next week, we're going to look at the end of this. We're going to look at the hardness of man. And we're going to take a look at that next week. I didn't think I'd finish this, but I thought I'd try. But I would, I would just encourage you, go back and read this about three or four times. Let it sink in. Meditate on this. This is your Savior we're reading about. This is your King. This is your Lord, and you are His slave. In fact, you've seen the word slave used several times. And I'll tell you, I'd rather be the slave of Jesus than King of the whole world. I don't know about you, right? And next week we'll talk about some of the implications. Do you have any questions? Anybody have questions on what we've talked about? Is this not an amazing passage? And oh, by the way, we're not done. Wait till you get to chapter 43. All right, let's pray. Father, we do come before you and we thank you. Jesus, you are magnificent. Jesus, your might and your grace and your tenderness. Jesus, all of your perfections are beyond our complete understanding. So we look at these words, Lord, and we believe them. We thank you that, Jesus, you have said, I am gentle and meek, and my yoke is easy. Jesus, you have saved us, and you are a tender shepherd. And we thank you and pray that as we worship you today, our worship will be deeper, more sincere, and that you would be glorified in everything you hear and see. We pray this in his name. Amen.